0: All right, well, grab your Bibles and open them up to Mark chapter 2. We're continuing in the gospel today, uh, getting better acquainted with the Savior through his actions and words. Um, Now, as we started the gospel of Mark, we said that, that, that this is Mark's goal, to help us see and appreciate Jesus for who he is. And the best way that Mark can think to do that is to basically sort of get out of the way um, and allow Jesus to make himself known, to present Jesus by his words and his actions. And that's what we've been doing, and that's what we're going to continue to do today. right? Jesus is revealing himself. Our job is to make sure that we're paying attention. And so today we're going to look at two stories, uh, one miracle and the second an interaction between Jesus and the scribes. And in both, we get a better understanding of of Jesus' priorities, of of sort of not only his ministry priorities, but what his priorities are for us as we live for him. And so with that, let's get into it. Mark chapter 2, we're starting right in verse 1, says this, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. All right, so last week, uh, Andrew mentioned that Mark likes to use the word immediately, um, and we see that again today. He does use the word immediately a few times. Uh, and the reason, though, at the end of the first chapter that he uses it is he wants us to see that those events are happening um, right in order. So this happened, and immediately Jesus went uh, and did this. And so he, he uses that as a cue uh, to help us see how closely related the events are. Uh, today he uses it in the story sort of in a place where it's like Jesus speaks Right, says rise, and then immediately the guy got up and walked. So he wants us to see that those two things are linked. But as we enter to chapter two today, he actually uses a different word uh, to to describe the passage of time. Uh, He begins by saying some days later. In other words, the gap between the last story at the end of chapter one and this one uh, is not immediate. Instead, there has been an extended passage of time, and it's helpful, I think, to be reminded of this, that as we go through the Bible, as we read through sort of books, and and these things are happening in rapid-fire order, um, the reality is that these events are much more stretched out than it sometimes appears in our Bibles, right? The amount of time between the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the cross was somewhere between two to three years, probably leaning more towards three years, In Mark, the triumphal entry, that's the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life, actually begins in chapter 11. What that means is that we have 10 chapters that span two to three years. And so it's important to remember that in between all these miraculous things that we are seeing, Jesus is walking and talking and eating. He's resting. He's praying. He's living life with those around him. And occasionally we get a glimpse into these quiet times, into his time of retreat, but even in this time of ministry, even in this sort of part of his life that we get a vision of, we're only truly ever seeing snapshots of Jesus. Now they're important snapshots, they're the ones that the Holy Spirit inspired the gospel writers to write, um, that he felt like we needed to know. But Jesus' life was also filled with friends and travel and feasts shared with people. And we're going to see one of those today. When it comes then to the miracles, they were really a small percentage of his time. And I think that that helps us somewhat with our own expectation of the miraculous. Right, The rare act of miracles um, is not meant to take away from the importance of the rest of life. They were there to confirm what Jesus was doing. Right, The miracles communicate that he is working in our lives, that Jesus is present and can bend the rules of nature even for us. But it's not to take away from the fact that he's there when we're walking and talking and eating. Recognizing this helps us to make the ordinary and the normal become opportunities to glorify God. It helps us to see that even those things that are seem somewhat mundane at times are actually ways and part of his mission. By seeing miracles as a small but important part of Jesus' work, it helps us to see those amazing moments of our life, those, those times that we sort of go, man, God was there as rare events to cherish, not something to chase or expect as regular. And doing this allows us to have the, the wonder of the rare flow into every part of our life. Because it reminds us that even the most mundane aspects of our lives are infused with divine possibilities. I would say that our lives become more spirit-filled and more miraculous when we aren't looking for signs and wonders at every turn. And I would say that is actually the irony of it. Um, Those people who tend to elevate miracles, who are looking for sort of the miraculous all the time, um, tend to see it the least. And what I mean is, when they're not experiencing the supernatural they tend to lean towards God isn't here. And I've heard that a lot of times. Not feeling it, God must, be, God must not be here. Um, this isn't happening, the spirit must not be here. But to steal a title from Francis Schaefer, he is there and he is not silent. God is active and working at all times, in all parts of our lives. And the way that we cultivate the ability to see and hear this is by getting the right pace both the right pace in reading the text, but also the right pace in leading, living our lives. And so we need to wonder at the miraculous as we live most of our lives in the ordinary. Realizing that it is an ordinary that has been given to us to live in unison with the God of the universe, which makes it not ordinary at all. All right, back to the story. All right. Jesus traveling, he comes back to Capernaum, it tells us. Um, This is the place where he cast out an unclean spirit on the Sabbath in chapter 1. Since that event happened, his fame has grown. Um, He has done numerous miracles. The last chapter ended with him healing the leper. Um, If you remember, he told the leper, don't tell anyone. And the leper was like, I'm going to tell everyone. Um, And all of a sudden, everybody knows about Jesus. Uh, The end of chapter 1 tells us Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. So as Jesus gets to the place where he stays in Capernaum, and, and most people assume that this is actually Peter's house, uh, the house is packed with people. Um, now, I've been in some crowded places in my life. I like to go to concerts. Um, I've been to some house shows. Those are pretty tight. Uh, but the only thing that probably relates anything to like what this was is if you've ever ridden on the subway during rush hour um, in a major city. Um, if you've ever been in that sort of thing where you are in there and you're like squeezed and then you get to a stop and the doors open up, there are people who need to get on but they just laugh, um, um, because there is no way that another human being can get into that. And every once in a while somebody tries and it's like, oh no, this guy. And they try to get in and actually like kind of get in so that the doors look, you know, um, and, and a lot of times they can't. Like it is so full, you can't get another human being on. Um, Side note, this is one of the moments where I am really happy about being tall. Um, Because while it's not the freshest air up there, it is fresher than what everybody else is going through. Um, But this is how the house is described. It says, even at the door, another person could not enter. All of these people came to see Jesus, to hear Jesus. um, And it says that he was teaching. And it says specifically he was teaching from the word. Um, and I love, I love this continual reminder that Jesus is, is, is leaning on the word. He, he continually goes back to delivering the word. Um, it's, 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 it's helpful to us to remember, it's not just, again, the, the miraculous. It's, it's all pointing to the word of God, the revelation delivered. Um, so Jesus teaching, the people all want to hear it, um, and then these guys come, they bring their friend on a mat, and they can't get in. Um, they're trying to bring their friend to Jesus. They can't get there, so um, uh, they go up to the roof. They they cut a hole in the roof. Um, they know that Jesus is what their friend needs, um, and so they do go through the difficult work of carrying him up to the roof to get him there. They lower Jesus, then or lower their friend, sorry, uh, down in front of Jesus. And then verse five tells us when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, "Your sins are forgiven." Now before we move on with the story, I want to address one thing here that came up a lot in my study this week, um, and that is when it says Jesus saw their faith and healed their friend, Um, a lot of people will jump to the conclusion that it's the faith of the four friends that then got the paralytic healed. Um, so, so if that's the way that you read it, which is how some people do, um, the application then come, becomes kind of like you can pray for and, and, and save your, your friends. Like you can do something to basically save them, which is not really helpful. Um, that is a wrong idea about how salvation works. Um, I would instead say the reason why, um, Jesus, well, what's going on here is that the faith that Jesus sees in them is all five of them. When he says them, he is not all of a sudden cutting out the person who was healed. Um, The guy who was on the mat was not just along for the ride, though he was along for the ride, um, but no, he also trusts that Jesus can heal, right? The whole reason why he's going through this process is because he has the same belief. And so while, again, it's them, um, Jesus sees the faith of all of them, he still heals the one who had faith, I'm getting ahead of myself because at this point he hasn't healed him yet. The guy still can't walk. Um, The man's a paralytic. He can't move his legs. His friends have brought him to Jesus because they'd heard that Jesus has the ability to heal. And they trust that Jesus has the ability to heal. And so they carried him there so that he could walk home. But Jesus' response to him at the beginning here is not about his legs at all. Right? It's about his heart. Jesus promises to heal him by forgiving his sins. And so the first miracle here is not physical, but spiritual, right? Jesus says, I've seen your faith, I've seen that you want to be healed, and I am going to heal you completely. Now, at that point, the scribes are freaking out, right? Um, and, and, and rightly so, um, uh, because no one has the authority to forgive sins but God. Um, in the Old Testament, and this is why we read the reading of the law that we did, there's all sorts of things you have to go through. There is a process before this is even a possibility, and Jesus just sort of sidesteps all that. He, he just goes, Yeah, yeah. He looks at the guy and says, Your sins are forgiven. Now, in a sense, then, Jesus has declared that he has more power than the Old Testament law because he can declare sins forgiven without all of the, the things that the law requires. Now, of course, that's going to bring up questions of like, Who does this guy think he is? Um, and that's what's going on with the scribes. They're over there in the corner going, Somebody going to do something? Who's going to do something? And it says they're not even saying it out loud. They're just thinking it. And Jesus turns to them. He knows what they're thinking. And he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, that's a trick question. The answer to the question is is neither is easier, because they're both impossible. Um, A sinful heart is like an incurable physical disease. It's not something that can simply be fixed. Right? So this man has legs that do not work, and he has a heart that does not work, because that's what sin does. It infects, it blinds, and ultimately it kills. So for Jesus to say, which is easier, is actually him saying, if I do one, will you believe that I can do the other? Jesus is about to do one impossible thing that can be verified in order to confirm one that cannot be proven. And so the healing of the man here is an act of teaching. Jesus says he's doing it so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So what Jesus is saying is, I am God, I have the authority to forgive sins, and I will prove both of these things by healing this man right now. And so he's basically put a lot into this moment right there's a lot built up here because if Jesus heals the guy then it means he is who he says he is he can do what he says um and and again he is here to redeem if he can't Jesus is a blasphemer and his promise of forgiveness means nothing he's made this moment mean that much and then he turns to the paralytic and he says I say to you rise pick up your bed and go home and it says, he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is giving a physical picture of the restoration that he brings. Right? All those who are healed by Jesus will once again be able to stand in the presence of a holy God. Now that story began all the way back in creation, right? We were created by a holy God in perfection We see in Genesis 1 a beautiful creation, we see perfect human relationships, and then we see that sin comes in and destroys it all. Now the greatest effect of sin, the most destructive part of choosing ourselves over God, um, is separation from him. Because he is perfect, he is holy, he cannot dwell in the presence of that which is not holy, and so our very nature as sinners makes it impossible for us to ever come to God. We are ultimately, because of our sin, eternally banished from him. And so we tend to think that the worst things that can happen in our lives are circumstantial. right? We lose our job, we lose our house, we lose our kids, we lose our ability to walk. These are the, kind of the worst things that we can think of. And all those things are bad. But what Jesus wants his disciples to understand is that all these frustrations are the results of a breakdown between the creator and his creation. And so all sin, all of the bad things that come from sin, come from this relational break. And to be healed, and to be forgiven, is to have this relationship reconnected. And so while the main concern of the paralytic and his friends was the ability to walk, Jesus does a much greater work. And as he makes clear to the scribes and all the others packed into this little house, the Son of Man has come to forgive sins and to heal the relationship between God and his people. This miracle is proof that he is able to, and that he has come to his people to do exactly as he promised. All that to say, Jesus is not just a magic man that is here to give you what you want most. He is a Savior who has come to redeem, and we need to see that. Now, the people in the story are still figuring out what all this means, right? They're, they're witnessing this and going, well, what they said is, They're all amazed and the glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So they're still just kind of like in shock, like, this is awesome. But before we move on, it's important to note that you can can be amazed. You can be shocked. And also miss the main point of what Jesus is trying to reveal. And I think many people do. There are a lot of people who claim to be Christians. There are a lot of people who are Christians who look at the miracles like this one, and they come to the conclusion that Jesus was primarily about improving other people's lives. That the ministry of Jesus was about feeding the hungry and overcoming disabilities. Now, it's clear that Jesus did these things, but he did it to reveal that he was the Messiah who would bring about the complete restoration of all things. He's going to bring newness and and renovation to everything. He's going to fix everything in the long run, But he begins with the restoration of our hearts. And so like the four friends in this story, we should bring others to Jesus knowing he has what they need. But we need to make sure we don't make the mistake of reducing it down to felt needs. Jesus did not promise that coming to him would make our lives better or easier. And that's the mistake that a lot of people make. He promised that he would forgive our sin. And that is far more important for our eternal state. And so in the healing of the paralytic, Jesus proves that he has the power to heal the body in order to make a statement about healing the soul. In the next story now, he's going to call his next disciple. And we see him once again responding to the naysayers um, so that he can teach us about his life and ministry. Verse 13, it says this, it says, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And so he rose and followed him. Um, so the first time we saw Jesus calling disciples a few weeks ago, uh, he was calling uh, exclusively fishermen, right? He called two sets of brothers. Um, now, not that there's anything wrong with fishermen, but that's sort of an odd choice uh, for sort of like first pick. Um, they weren't exactly known for their brains. Uh, we see this actually coming up over and over again later, in the, um, especially in Acts, when they start teaching, and people are like, how are you guys so smart? You're just fishermen. Um, uh, the expectation is that they wouldn't be able to sort of lead a teaching ministry. Um, these unlearned men, though, speak with such authority. And so Jesus' first four choices are blue-collar guys who know how to work hard, uh, but wouldn't be considered book smart. Again, a strange choice for a teaching and speaking ministry. Levi now, who he's calling, is a different, different guy. Um, he's a tax collector, so good with numbers. Um, he would have been viewed as a bit more intelligent than, than those who have come before. Um, but he's also despised because of his chosen profession. Right? To be a tax collector meant that you worked with the oppressive Romans to take money from the Jewish people. Um, but it didn't just end there. Right? It wasn't just that you worked with the enemies, that you were a traitor. Um, it was also very common for the tax collectors to skim a little bit off the top. Um, it was almost kind of expected. Um, it was like how American tipping has gotten, but without sort of asking first. Um, you just pay a little extra for everything. Here, push a button on the screen. Um, sorry. This <laughs> obviously, I have issues with some other things. Uh, um, yeah. So tax collectors were greedy thieves who had turned on their own people. Um, and, and this had kind of built and built within society to the point that the, um, uh, the religious leaders saw them as, as extremely morally repugnant, um, so much so that good people were not supposed to even hang out with them. Um, so when Jesus goes and he sits with them, when he eats with them, when he calls them as his disciples, um, this is pretty shocking. Um, and so when Jesus calls Levi uh, here, we see just like the others, he, he follows Jesus Uh, He immediately joins Jesus on mission. And we see that Jesus' ragtag team is beginning to take shape. Uh, It continues to be people who are not obvious choices. And I would just say, this part of Jesus, the way that he calls his disciples, who he calls as his disciples, uh, is really refreshing. And I think it's really refreshing if you are someone who, let's just say, is not the obvious choice. Um, If you've ever in your life felt like the oddball the one who doesn't fit, the person who's trying to figure it out when everyone else around you seems to know what they're doing. Uh, You're in good company in the kingdom of God. Now, in truth, I would say you're in good company in general. I think most people actually experience many of these things. Most people are insecure and unsure, feeling like the outlier. I sit down with a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life um, and I honestly don't know anyone who doesn't feel like there is someone against them, or some situation where they are the outcast. Who doesn't feel like somehow, again, everyone is on the inside and they're on the outside? Um, it's a common human feeling. Um, some of you probably feel it here. Um, some of some people feel it other places. But somewhere in your life, you are going to have this this feeling. Again, it's refreshing to see that, that Jesus looks at those people and all of that stuff just washes away. But the second part is, we're all going to feel that way. The question is, what do you do about it? What do you do with your own fear of being the outsider? How do you handle knowing that there is something wrong with you or something at least seemingly wrong with you in a situation? And the final story here offers us two options of, of how to deal with that. What do we do with with well, what do we do with that fear verse 15 tells us this it says as he reclined at the table in his house many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him and the scribes of the pharisees when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors said to his disciples why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners and when Jesus heard it he said to them those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick i came to call sorry i came not to call the righteous but sinners. So we see Levi's response to, to Jesus' invitation um, is first to follow Jesus and secondly to throw a party, um, which is actually, we see this in the New Testament a lot. Um, those people who, who are welcomed by Jesus want to respond and one of the common ways that they respond is by inviting him over for a meal. Um, the good news of belonging is something that these outsiders want to share, and so they tend to invite their friends over and go, you need to meet this guy. You need to experience the belonging that I am experiencing. Um, again, they are overwhelmed, uh, and, and so they, are, they want to share that. Um, and so when Jesus is calling sinners and outcasts, their friends are also sinners and outcasts, and so now we have a whole room full of sinners and outcasts, and Jesus is right there in the middle of the table Uh, eating with them. It's a beautiful picture. Um, And so in this we see the kind of a first response to Jesus. The tax collectors and the sinners know who they are. Um, They're people who are well acquainted of all of the ways in which they have fallen short, all of the ways in which society does not accept them. Um, And this is why they are so, again, overwhelmed that Jesus would choose to spend his time with them. They know that they do not deserve to be loved and forgiven. And so they are overjoyed at Jesus' presence, we see that those who recognize their sins celebrate the grace that is given to them. Now there's another group in this story, and with them we see another response to Jesus. It's the scribes. They see who Jesus has chosen to spend his time with, and they attempt to shame him. That's really what they're doing when they're confronting his disciples. They are not actually looking for an answer to the question. Uh, They're trying to bring up the fact that Do you see what he's doing? Come on. This is the guy you're following. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I think it's important to note um, that Jesus also eats with the scribes. Right? Sometimes there's this misnomer that Jesus chooses the tax collectors over the Pharisees, but that's not true. The Pharisees are actually always in the crowd with everybody else. They're obviously at the meal enough to see what's going on. Jesus doesn't choose the tax collectors over the Pharisees. Um, he actually shows grace to both of them. The difference is actually in how they respond to him. The scribes act as if they are worthy of Jesus' time. See, they're good and righteous in their own minds, and, and if Jesus spends his time with anyone, if he's going to choose who he's going to dine with, it should be them. And so their issue with Jesus um, and who he chooses to eat with is more about the fact that they want it to be exclusive. They think that it should be reserved for only those people who um, are righteous. His choice of these despised members of society then takes something away from their elevated position. Because if Jesus gives value to the sinners and the tax collectors, then they sort of lose the high ground that they have in, in society, the, in the battle for power and value. And so while they ask a question here that sounds like they're concerned with Jesus not being corrupted or staying above reproach, what they're actually most concerned with is how his actions are going to affect their lives. And as usual, Jesus' answer is brilliant. His answer to this question is actually, the more I study it, the more I'm like, this is one of, I mean, he has some amazing answers, but this one, this is what he says. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Now that the reason why that's such an amazing answer um, is that he's not just addressing the question of why he's willing to dine with the outcasts of society, um, but he's also sort of calling out to the scribes in his answer. When he says, I came not to call the righteous but sinners, he's making a statement about the heart of the people who receive him. It isn't that Jesus is more interested in saving the outcasts, it's that they are more interested in him. When Jesus says, I do not call the righteous, it's because there are no righteous. No, not one, we are told. There are, however, people who think they are. And the self-righteousness is what keeps them from recognizing their need and the healing that Jesus brings. He is the physician, but people only go to the doctor if they think that they're sick. And what keeps people from coming to Jesus, from receiving his healing, is that they think that their life is just fine without him. The Bible tells us all need the healing that he offers, but some don't recognize it. They want to be seen as good and righteous in who they are. And so they seek to add to their lives. They say, Jesus, what are you going to do for me? How can you help me achieve the things that I already want to do? Instead of actually realizing they are broken and they are sick and they need to be healed. And so Jesus' answer here is a defense of his dining habits, but it's also a call to the scribes to repent. He is saying to them, recognize who you are. Come to me. There's there's no barrier. Realize that you're sick. The great physician is here and he makes the same call to us. At any point, the scribes could let down their guard and their posturing and see their need. They could come to Jesus and they would be healed. The only barrier is their desire to be justified in themselves, which is something we all struggle with. This is not just a problem for the Pharisees. And so both of the stories today point to the same truth. We must see our need and come to Jesus knowing that he is both willing and able to heal us. And this isn't about the sort of one-time act of conversion. This isn't about the paralytic coming to Jesus and now he can walk and now he doesn't need Jesus anymore. No, we need to be reminded of our need again and again. Because Jesus doesn't simply heal us and then we never sin again. We aren't made right with him and then we act righteously from that moment on. No, we continue to sin and the healer continues to give us what we need and so the best way to keep us from self-righteousness into falling into this trap is to realize that you're never righteous without him you're never good and you don't need to be healed and we remind ourselves of this every week when we gather together and take communion because when we take the bread and the cup, the body and the blood, we're not re-crucifying Jesus. We're not going through that process over and over again. His one-time sacrifice is sufficient. It is finished. But the fact that the healer has healed us completely does not take away our, continually, our continual need for him. And so we partake over and over and over again as a declaration that we are still sinners in need of a physician. And that Jesus is that healer who is willing to heal the outcasts and sinners that come to him, us included. And so as you come to the table today, come broken. Come recognizing that you are not his because you are righteous enough. You are not his because you were the best choice. You belong to the family of God because he looked at you and said, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for who you are. Um, you act so differently than we would or do. Um, you choose based on your love and your grace, and it's just such a beautiful reality for us. As we know our faults, we know our failings, we know all the reasons why we aren't good enough. And yet what we see, when we see you act, we see that you act without any need for us to prove ourselves. You act simply because you are good and gracious and loving. And so I pray that we would be able to let our guard down, that we would be able to stop posturing, that we would, that we would stop thinking that there's something that we need to do to be good enough. And that, God, we would accept the grace that you give and, and just experience the joy that we see in the tax collectors and the sinners uh, who just gather around you and have a great feast We want to be like that, and we pray that you would help us to get past ourselves to get there. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.